Well, this morning we continue our Christmas countdown. As we take the month of December, just to take a moment to once again refocus on the majesty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to just take this month and ramp up to that day that the world celebrates the birth of our Savior. And we know that there's a lot of uh, commercialism that has been attached to Christmas, and we understand that there's a lot of propaganda and so forth. We also understand that uh, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Uh, that day was assigned much later on in history. Uh, the Bible pretty much clearly indicates that he was b- born in the spring. But we take this moment, allowing that the world also is taking this moment to put our attention back on Christ. Now, as a Christian, 364 days out of the week, right? My attention should be on Christ. It shouldn't vary from week to week, day to day, but it does often. But if I have a moment where the whole world is thinking about this one moment, I'm going to capitalize on it and take that moment as an opportunity to tell them the greatest uh, news that they could possibly ever hear, and that is the gospel. So we wanted just to take a moment this December here at church to bring our attention back to the person of Christ. Maybe your eyes have gotten off of him a little bit, and maybe we just need to bring him back to focus, back to center. Uh, Again, he hasn't moved. We have, right? He's always there in his throne. We have, he hasn't moved. We have. And so let's bring our attention back to him. And we're doing that in a countdown to Christmas. And the title of my message this morning is a Christmas preview. I just read in the Chicago Tribune this week that do you realize that the Christmas holiday has become the number one time of the year for big best featured movies to be released? Did you realize that? Growing up, it used to be the summer. It used to be the summertime that those big blockbuster movies were released and people would flock to them, whatever they may be. But that's changed now. Now it's during Christmas time. I was also uh, startled to discover that people who go to the theater today don't only go for the feature film. Do you know what they go for also? The previews. People love movie previews. To me, it was an extra 15 minutes to get popcorn, okay? But for others, they really loved it. They want to know what's coming next. And you and I know that often when we see previews of movies, some of them that are really bad, all the best scenes are in that that three-minute preview. But I couldn't believe the last time I was to a film... And the previews were there, and people were ooing and awing over the previews of the movies that were still yet to be released. Based on that experience, I titled our message this morning a Christmas preview. Because we're going to discover this morning that that Christmas day, that day that Jesus was born there in Bethlehem, was the fulfillment of many previews that occurred prior. 
One of the reasons we are looking at Christ so intently during this time of year is to truly clean up a lot of misconceptions that people have about Jesus. And looking at the pre-existence of Jesus, that's what we're doing specifically. We're looking at the pre-existence of Jesus, meaning he existed prior to that day in the manger. And so the first misconception that we uh, alleviate ourselves of is the fact that Jesus' life did not begin there in the manger, did it? And therefore, he is so far superior to simply a good person to be reduced to that level or a great teacher. But then people are also uh, surprised to discover that he wasn't created at the beginning of creation. Second misconception that many have about Jesus, that Jesus was simply created at the same time God created all the angels. No, didn't happen that way either. And last time together, last week, we looked at Christmas in the beginning, where we explored that portion of your Bible that you probably have never looked at previously. It's the book that precedes the book of Genesis in your Bible. And as you looked and discovered that there was an eternity past that uh, occupied that time before Genesis 1-1 that is called in the New Testament before the foundations of the world, that's the uh, target label that it is given in the New Testament, we discovered that God in the triune being, the second person of that triune being, being the Son Himself, Jesus Christ, existed from the very beginning of the beginning, from the beginning before the beginning began. There you go. And we left ourselves as we were launching from John 1.1. Let's read it together. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That was the text in which we launched from discovering that the term word there was a term used for Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form, meaning the form he had before coming and being born there as a human in the manger. And we learned that he was in the beginning with God and was in the beginning and he was God and he was in the beginning and all things that were made were made through him. Paul reiterates this for us in Colossians 1, 16 and 17. I'll read it for you. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And that's where we pretty much left it last week. We brought you from that time of eternity past up to the point of creation. And now we discover that Jesus was there and all the things that were created were created through Him. 
Therefore, stating that he himself is not a created being, he is an eternally existent individual. And the only eternal existent individual is God, which of course is the statement in which we are making in our series that Jesus is God. So that brings us to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The similarity between John and Genesis. And now that we see that Jesus is at the forefront of the creation of all things, we launch it from that point. And as we look at those 4,000 years between Genesis 1-1 and Jesus coming as an infant there in Bethlehem, in those 4,000 years of the Old Testament existence, we have appearances of God to individuals throughout that period of time, recorded for us in the Old Testament. These appearances are called theophanies. Big word, theophanies. Theo, meaning God, and theophany, meaning appearance. We have God appearing throughout the Old Testament to individuals. Now, there are five criterias for a true theophany, meaning a God appearance to man in the Old Testament. Number one to that criteria is that it must be a true manifestation of God and not simply what's called an antimorphism, meaning that God is given some kind of association to human form. For example, the ear of God or the hand of God. It has to be more than that. The manifestation does not need to only appear in human form, but may appear in symbolic form also in these appearances. Number two, it can happen in physical sight or through a dream or a vision. Number three, and number four, it must be identified with God either in self-affirmation or by a statement of identification from the recipient of the theophany or from biblical writers interpreting interpretation of that event. And number five, the manifestation exists to make known the divine will to the recipient. A theophany then is a manifestation of God to man, either in human or symbolic form, in order to impact God's will to that person. I'm sure you've got all of that, don't you? God appearing to man in the Old Testament, either through the form of a human or in some symbolic form. It is these theophanies that we are going to consider this morning in our look of Jesus Christ. And where are these theophanies found? They are found throughout the Old Testament. And this should be given to you to stimulate your reading of the Old Testament. Every time you see this point where God and man come together in the Old Testament, you should take special note of it. Considering what is being promised, considering what is being revealed, considering what is being said at that moment. It is a highlight of the Old Testament, one that should be looked at and embraced. Now, the exact number of these theophanies, many debate. Many of them are found with the, patri- the patriarchs, J- Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the one who has experienced God the most was Moses. Sometimes, again, it is in human form. 
Other times, it is in symbolic form. In human form, often called the angel of God or the angel of the Lord, specifying that this individual in whom they are conversing with is something more uh, than just a mere angel or messenger given at that time. But it can also be symbolic. A pillar of fire by night, a cloud of smoke by day, a burning bush. As we look through these theophanies, we ask the question, well, why are they important for our discussion this morning? Again, as we establish our understanding of Jesus' preexistence, it is my hope that when we look at a nativity scene or we see a manger or remember that day in which he is born, that you and I would stand in awe of that day knowing who that child actually is and allowing our lives to simply be transformed by it. Now we discuss these theophanies in connection with Christ because of a statement that John made. A statement that we can't get past. Because we have numerous appearances of God in the Old Testament. But then John tells us something that seems to contradict all of those experiences found in the Old Testament. Turn with me to John chapter 1. Look down with me to verse 18. Verse 18 of John chapter 1. What does John say? No one has ever seen God. That's a statement. Because throughout the Old Testament, there are many times where God is interacting with man And yet, John says, no one has ever seen God. This isn't the only time he says it. He says it in 1 John 4.12 also. So the question then is, who is appearing in the Old Testament? Who is making the promises that are being made in the Old Testament? Who is conveying the information, giving the revelation there in the Old Testament, if no one has seen God at any time. But notice what he says after that in verse 18. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is he referring to here? Well, if we read 1-1 again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. John is describing the word here, which we have now learned to understand it to be Jesus Christ himself. And I agree with those who say that the revelation of God the Father did not begin solely at the time that Christ was birthed, but began previously. As it was Jesus who appeared at that, those moments in the Old Testament to reveal to the subjects in which he appealed to the information or to convey the Father's will, to allow that individual to learn more of the Father's character through him. So when you read the Old Testament, and you see and read of these appearances of God to these individuals, let, you, let it be understood that most now believe that these were Old Testament appearances of Jesus Christ. 
because it is Him who has made Him known. And the full development of those theophanies throughout the Old Testament combined and fulfilled in the birth of Christ Himself. The true revelation to the point that Jesus could say these words, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. The perfect representation of God the Father in the Son, Jesus Christ. To have a statement such as that, that these are Old Testament appearances of Jesus Christ, we need to be able to substantiate that. We need to find if there are texts that allow us to embrace that understanding. I want to give ourselves the opportunity to explore two of these texts this morning to give you, again, a deeper appreciation of who Jesus is. So that when someone says to you, well, Jesus was born in that manger, you can say, oh, man, it was so much more than that. Or Jesus was created with the angels. Man, it was so much more than that. You you don't understand who Jesus is. I am also surprised to discover the number of Christians who wrestle with the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. They believe because he is called the Son of God that he has somewhat been reduced from God the Father and is not the same. Because they have a misunderstanding of what that uh, term means. Well, he was the Son of God. He wasn't God, he was the Son of God. But what does John tell us very clearly about the Word? That he was with God and that he was God from the beginning. We begin our journey looking at these theophanies in the book of Genesis chapter 14 to one I find that is absolutely fascinating. A mysterious individual interacts with a man named Abraham. It is at a time where Abraham is exhausted. He has just um, went to battle uh, to release his nephew Lot from captivity. He was victorious in that battle. And as he was returning from that battle, he was met on his way by one name, Melchizedek, I should say in Genesis 14, one name Melchizedek, starting in verse 17, and after his defeat of Kalamador and of the kings that were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at a valley in Shevev, that is the king's valley. And in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought up bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, professor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, if we were just to stop there, it would be easy to simply conclude that this was just a king that came and to met and to encourage Abraham after his great victory. And yet there are some startling parallels here. Notice the two elements 
in which Melchizedek brings to Abraham bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? I think we read that somewhere else, didn't we? But then there's the title Melchizedek. Why do I say it that way? Because Melchizedek is not a proper name. It is simply a title. And we're going to discover that in the book of Hebrews. And then Abraham does something that is absolutely extraordinary. After this priest, which is also extraordinary, a priest unto the Most High God before the Levitical system of priesthood was ever established, meaning he is one who can minister unto the God Most High, Abraham responds to this individual in a complete, utter, radical, unique way. What does he do? He gives them tithes. He gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. It was an action of adoration. It was a response of worship. And we're seeing this play out before us, and we're not fully understanding everything that is going on here, but it sure is interesting. That's why we thank God for the New Testament writers. If you travel with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews gives an incredible explanation of Melchizedek. And more importantly, the writer of Hebrews demonstrates why Jesus Christ is our ultimate high priest, and therefore, and yet he is, I should say, not part of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of who? Judah. And so the question that the Jewish mind has is, how could he be our high priest? How could he be the one that goes before us? How can he be the one that mediates for us on our behalf? How is that possible? And the writer of Hebrews says, because Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says about Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 1 of Hebrews. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appoint, uh, appropriated uh, a tenth part of everything. He is the first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Before Jerusalem was known as Jerusalem, it was known as Salem. So he's the king of righteousness, the king of Jerusalem, the king of peace. And notice verse 3, speaking of Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy. As an individual, he was an eternal individual. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. I believe that Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Jerusalem, king of peace, is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. As he ministered unto Abraham to encourage him at that moment, through the bread and the wine, which later would be used by Christ himself to celebrate the communion with his disciples there in the upper room. 
And so we have now the pre-existence of Christ before the birth of Bethlehem now recorded for us and given to us. Now there are some who disagree and feel that Melchizedek is simply a man and this is simply a parallel. But the phrase that I then bring to their attention again in the Greek is very clear and that is verse 3. He, that is Melchizedek, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having a beginning of days nor end of life. Who does that sound like? I think it was said another way. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To me, that's very clear that Melchizedek was more than just a mere man, a mere priest of the Most High God. This next one might startle you to discover that something more was going on at this moment. If you turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, we're going to come to one of the most famous scenes throughout all the Bible. Undoubtedly, if you've watched television during the holiday season, either you have seen Charlton Heston stand before this, or the little animation of the Prince of Egypt by Steven Spielberg. And I don't know about you, but in both of those cinematic portrayals of this eternal event, I get goosebumps when I see Moses approaching that burning bush, a bush that is on fire but is yet not consumed. And when the bush speaks to him, and the bush reveals to him who he is, I say to myself, oh, that's amazing. As the bush is burning and reveals to Moses as Moses approached to take off his sandals for he is on holy ground. It means that he was in the presence of God. That this was a special place. That you needed to consider how you approach by taking off your sandals in such a regard. It meant how do you approach this? Uh, We need to approach with reverence, with awe, with repentance. Knowing that we stand before a holy God. And as we hear them in Exodus chapter 3, we are told that the individual that he stood before in verse 2 was none other than one of those two designated um, titles for an Old Testament appearance of Christ, the angel of the Lord. For you will see this title throughout the Old Testament and often it is given Uh, to the individual to state that this is something more than just a mere angel. This is something more than just uh, a cherubim, one of the more uh, highly created angels, or in the hierarchy of angels, I should say, a cherubim would be one that is more um, revered than maybe a lonely angel like Clarence. But as Moses approached as he was there in Midian taking care of his father-in-law's flocks, he looked up and he saw, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, a bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is the bush uh, not burning And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him. So we have no doubt that this is God here speaking to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 
Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So there is no doubt that the bush that he is speaking to is God himself. No doubt of that. He calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is one of the most revered individuals in the Jewish faith. In fact, he's revered by many faiths and cultures around the world. But of course, the Jewish faith sees him as the first patriarch of the Jewish community. And yet, Abraham was willing to give tithes over to Melchizedek, acknowledging that Melchizedek was greater than he. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So he turned aside to see this great thing, and he approached. And you know the story, and you can read it on your own. It came to the point after finding that God wanted him to go back and to release his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh. We come to verse 14. When Moses asked him that question, What is your name? Who are you? In whose authority do I come to release your people? And of course, you know how the bush responded. God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now again, we see this account. We see it play out. We see Moses then go back and, re- and lead the people out from Pharaoh's bondage of slavery. Then 4,000 years later, in Jerusalem, as Jesus once again is being confronted by the religious leaders, John's gospel tells us in substantiating the claim that Jesus is God, that Jesus said something to them that was so radical that it caused the individuals hearing the words of Jesus to respond by picking up stones and to cast stones at him, thinking that they were destroying a false prophet because he says something that again, they never thought that they would hear. And the statement in which Jesus said is not only claiming that he is equal to the one who said it, but he is the one who said it. The Jewish people knew thoroughly what he meant when he said it. John knew that when he wrote it. No one was going to use this term. No one would dare to use it loosely or callously or with any kind of flippancy. But Jesus said very clearly in John 8, 58 and 59, as he was being pressed by the religious leaders, and he said to them, finally, as they were looking for his identity, challenging his authority, questioning his abilities, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, the most revered individual in the Jewish thinking and mindset, only parallel to Moses himself, Abraham. 
Before Abraham was, Jesus says, I am. The same terminology that was used there at the burning bush, Jesus uses that of himself. I fully believe that the burning bush was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ where it is clearly God talking to Moses. Why? Because no one has ever seen God. I believe that it is Jesus in these events. Now we see some substantiation of that in New Testament texts. And notice the result. When the religious leaders heard Jesus use this term, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he says. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In the temple proper itself, Jesus claims to be God. Identifying himself with the burning bush was something that no Jewish individual would ever dare to do unless it was absolutely true. Or if he had a death wish. And that's why they went to stone him. Now, that's only two of the many appearances of God to individuals in the Old Testament. But I will declare to you that in the sum totality of them all, there are three distinctive characteristics of each theophany in the Old Testament. There's an eschatological, eschatological, I should say, a redemptive, and a Christology in each and every one of them. What do those things mean? If you were to take all the appearances of God in the Old Testament and categorize them neatly, they would fall into one of three categories. They would be eschatological, meaning that it is Jesus Christ's ultimate role to fulfill what is being promised. When we talk of eschatology today, we often reduce it to simply the study of the last days. But what it is, is the study of the last days and what Jesus Christ is going to fulfill. In the Old Testament, those fulfillments were found in his first advent, his first coming. In the promises still yet to be fulfilled, it'll happen in his second. It'll point to Jesus. Whatever promises are made in those theophanies and those revelations contained within those events... They will find their fulfillment and the universal blessings stemming from the first or second coming of the Messiah. Number two, it is redemptive. When you look at the theophanies in their totality, you will notice that many of them can be categorized as being redemptive. Those appearances were not only uh, concerned with the redemption of the individual recipient in whom the appearance was made to, but also the redemption manifestation in the time of Christ's first or second coming. There's a promise of redemption. There's a promise that God is going to save his people in these Old Testament appearances. And number three, they are Christological, which means... The more permanent theophanies of the Old Testament, the theophanic angel of the Lord or of God, or the Shekinah glory themselves, itself, finds the complete fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm saying. When you consider a nativity, when you consider the day we worship the birth of Jesus Christ, remember that that infant 
that infant appeared to Abraham as Melchizedek. That infant appeared to Moses in the burning bush. That infant led the children of Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud. That infant led the children of Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of fire. That infant is the one that stood before Joshua. That infant is the one that came and declared to Abraham that a year from now he was going to have a son named Isaac. That's where I want to get us to. That's what I want you to understand. That it was him active and involved throughout the whole Old Testament process, bringing it to his first coming, the ultimate theophany, the ultimate appearing of God to mankind. So he could say, on part part of God, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. I don't think we truly appreciate that. I don't think we reverence Christ highly enough sometimes. I think sometimes we've reduced him to our mere buddy, our little friend. Someone who's got my back. Someone I slap high five to in the morning before I go off to work. Jesus Christ is God. He was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning because he was God. And all things that were made were made through him. And throughout the Old Testament, he promised that I would bring these things to pass in the days to come. In the Old Testament, I promise that I'm going to redeem my people as he appeared to individuals to continuously assure them and to convey to them that the covenant promises in which he is making to them would come to pass. And then on that day, that that brilliant star shone from heaven, and illuminated that child in that barn to lead others to come and to worship him as he's being heralded by angels and proclaimed, this is God amongst us. Let us understand that that's Christmas. That's what we are celebrating together as an individual and as a community of believers. And his preexistence has been established from the foundation of the world. Let us never forget that. 